Broadcasting from the House of Mystery somewhere in Tennessee, this is Mysterious Matters, and I am the curator of mysteries. My name is Bob Bain, and welcome back to the program, ladies and gentlemen. This evening, we are welcoming on Duncan Lunan, and Duncan is joining us all the way from Troon, Scotland. But before we begin this program with Duncan, I do want to say that this introduction is being recorded separately from the actual live interview that I did with Duncan. The reason for that is because I was ill during that interview and I just uh, completely, believe it or not, I completely forgot to do an in, a, um, introduction. And so I am doing this introduction with my voice being somewhat better now. With that said, ladies and gentlemen, let's get Duncan online with us. And as I said, this is a pre-recorded introduction because, well, the person who hasn't done a show in a while forgot to do an introduction. It happens. So let's get on with the program. And without further ado, Duncan, welcome to Mysterious Matters. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, it's great to have you here with us. We've been talking before uh, through email, actually, and as I've mentioned to you before, my ancestors were from Scotland, and I wish I had your accent. I absolutely love it. Sorry, yours would be a big hit over here. Yeah, over here, everybody talks like me. There's nothing to it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> let's get on to the topic of, well, let's see here. Back in, what was it, 1972, I believe it was, that you did an analysis of a... Uh, of something re first reported about back in the 1920s. It was a mysterious signal, correct? Yes. Um, specifically, the signal was uh, not in itself mysterious because what was happening was that signals being transmitted from Earth started to be returned from some nearby source in space. Um, it was uh, just assumed at the time to be a natural phenomenon, and it wasn't until 1959 that uh, Professor Ron Bracewell at Stanford suggested this might have been the attempt of a probe from another civilization to attract our attention. Um, that was what I got interested in. Back All the way back in 1959, somebody was brave enough to say it could be a probe from an more advanced civilization. This was immediately in the wake of when Frank Drake at the Green Bank Observatory attempted Project Ozma, listening to, listening to a couple of nearby stars for signals from other civilizations because he, he reckoned that uh, they were about the right distance that um, signals generated during the first world, the Second World War might, might have reached them and attracted attention and been returned. And this caused a whole wave of publication of theoretical studies on interstellar communication. And Bracewell was the one who said, you know, listening for long-distance radio signals may not be the way to go. The most effective way to attract attention would be to send out exploratory probes which would find Earth-like worlds and listen for signals being generated, beam them back to the planet of origin in order to attract attention and hopefully open communication on behalf of the, their senders. And uh, he, he went on to this almost throwaway remark, it would be like the long-delayed echoes heard in the 1920s and never explained. And the late John McVeigh who 
was uh, a chemist at the uh, ICI chemical plant near, near here and had written several books on intercellular communication by that time. Uh, that time being uh, 1967, when he first drew my attention to this. Um, he, he said, you ought, you ought to look into this. And eventually I did. Um, and uh, yeah, something very interesting came up when I did. Um, I looked up the original papers that were published in Nature back in the, back in the, the late 1920s. And the interesting thing was, um, a chant, um, what was going on at the time was Marconi's initial experiments in transatlantic radio communication had got people very interested in the idea of round-the-world round signaling. Uh, they discovered that um, on some frequencies, signals were bouncing off charged layers in the upper atmosphere could be held over much greater distances than they otherwise would be. And Phillips at Eindhoven set up an experimental program in which they were putting out the Morse letter S as a, as a signal um, at intervals of a few seconds and asking people all around the world to listen out for echoes of these signals and, uh, and let them know that this was happening. And uh, an engineer, a uh, telephone engineer called House, living in Oslo, started picking up echoes, but they weren't the round-the-world one-seventh of a second delay echoes that he was listening for. They were coming back with a delay of three seconds. And uh, he realized that this was the signal path from the Earth to the orbit of the Moon. His first thought was that they were bouncing off the moon itself. And it didn't take very long to establish that that wasn't the case. The moon has a very poor reflector of radio waves. Nobody succeeded in bouncing signals off it until 1947, but that's, that's not relevant to the, the thing. The point was that uh, the timing was all wrong for these echoes to be coming from the moon. And he, he went to... He, went to a scientist called uh, Stormer, Professor Stormer, who was an expert on the Aurora Borealis at the, the local university. Uh, Stormer had already had the idea that charged particles from the sun might form belts around the Earth, in which he was right, except that he, 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 didn't, he didn't have the the necessary numbers, and he, he thought they would be around the distance of the moon. In fact, it turned out to be much closer than what we now call the Van Allen belt. And um, so he jumped straight to the conclusion that the signals House was hearing were bouncing off these belts at that distance. And so he contacted uh, Van der Poel, who was in charge of the experiments at Eindhoven, um, and a new series of experiments was set up. And uh, the next thing was, House telephoned Stormer and said, I'm hearing three-second echoes again. Uh, come over. And he, uh, Stormer headed over to House's place. And just as he arrived, he caught just about the last of the three-second echoes 
before they went to four seconds and then five seconds and then began varying at intervals up to 15 seconds. What they both missed in their excitement was that these signals they were hearing were far too loud to be natural echoes on signal paths as long as that. And furthermore, that there was no variation in intensity between the three-second echoes and the 15-second echoes. So whatever was happening, apparently, the signals were being recorded, amplified, and delayed and played back to Earth by something at a common source, be it a natural phenomenon or be it, uh, be it something else. Um, and the, the experimental program that continued from there remained with this hang-up about natural echoes. They never, back in the 1920s, they never twigged that they, they couldn't be natural echoes. It wasn't until really until I started investigating it that I realized there was something very odd going, much odder than that going on. Hmm. Now, when I initially re read up on this, uh, I looked at the patterns of the delays of the, the signals and it looked random. And I had actually written it up as random for the book I, I was working on at that time. Uh, but something kept bugging me, and eventually it was this bit about the intensities that, that, I, uh, that I twigged. And I thought, now, wait a minute, there's more to this. I reread Breswell's papers, and he had said at the end of one of them, should we pick up, should we detect an effect like this and respond? Should we be surprised if the next image is a television image of a constellation? Well. Wow. Well, of course, they didn't have television in the 1920s. So, so, um, and I, 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 and at that point, I had this moment of insight. I thought, the stars are spaced at random in the sky. So a set of star map coordinates encoded into this system would appear as a random series of numbers. So with no expect, expectation of finding anything, I had a couple of tries at graphing delay time against sequence. I suddenly found myself looking at what appeared to be a recognizable image of a constellation uh, with one star picked out, and the constellation of Boötes, the herdsman, with the star Epsilon Boötes picked out. I was, I was sitting on a train at the time with a, a little diagram I'd drawn in the corner of a page of my notebook, and I just looked at it and went, that looks more like an intelligence signal. In fact, it looks familiar, and I know what that is. And I just went into this cascade of we are not alone in the universe. Interstellar travel is possible. Interstellar communication is possible. Logic is universal. And the people in the train compartment were all looking at me. They could see the look on my face. And I thought, shall I tell them? No, they'll pull the communication cord, they'll stop the train. <laughs> so I just sat there looking at it in wonder. And I got home, and the first thing I did was look up the characteristics of the star. And the thing about Epsilon Boetis was, and I immediately recognized it, it was an orange giant star. It had left the main sequence. Its stable lifetime was over. Now, something that 
had been very much discussed in the various papers being published in the wake of Project Osman was what would motivate a civilization to commit the resources to interstellar communication. And I, I certainly thought, I'm looking at the answer to that. Uh, sending a message that says, our home is an orange giant star, is like calling the fire brigade and shouting, my house is on fire. The, the message is an appeal. The statement is an appeal. But you would, you would only, they would be assuming, as people had assumed in uh, their Project Osma and the rest, that um, we would be at the, the very beginning of this level of technology. They would be much more advanced. They'd, but they'd, they'd be assuming that anybody they contacted would be more advanced still. And yet they were making this, this appeal. And on the other hand, it must have occurred to them that a less advanced civilization like ours might pick up these signals. But they had chosen not to conceal their problem. Um, they weren't trying to take us, invade us or take us over. They were, they were still phrasing it as an appeal, if you will. So morality as well as logic would be yes. universal. You can imagine the state of mind I was in by this point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to me. Took me two years to come down from it. <laughs> um, I can imagine. Yeah, and wonderful as it all appeared to be, um, in the end it didn't check out. I went on to attempt a translation of all of the 1920s records I could locate, and I submitted this to the British Interplanetary Society, who published it, or at least uh, part of it, in in. Uh, the magazine Space Flight and got me to lecture to uh, to large public audience in Caxton Hall in London in uh, the middle, mid 1973. Um, and yeah, it was um, it was like a nine days wonder. Uh, well, it lasted longer than that. It was a very exciting time. Um, but in the end, it turned out to be wrong. Uh, that was one aspect of it. The other aspect of it was that due to the most extraordinary chain of circumstances, um, the story syndicated by the Daily Mail across the United States was full of errors. Because uh, It's too long a story to explain why it was full of errors, but it was. Uh, among many mistakes, it said that I was the professor of astronomy at Glasgow University. And it got most of the rest of it wrong as well. And that false story has continued to haunt me to this day. Mm. Um, it lives uh, the the non-existent Professor Lunan leads leads a life completely separate from mine on the internet. <laughs> People just make up stories. Um, you wouldn't believe how much nonsense there is out there about me. But the truth of the matter is, when I uh, continued the investigation. Uh, initially, it looked as if the facts about the Epsilon Boatis system supported the translation of the more complicated signals that I had put forward. In the end, it turned out that this was not the case, that the actual data about the star in the catalogues was wrong. Epsilon Boatis is twice as far away as the catalogues said it was. And 
essentially that means that the star was much more massive, more short-lived, much too uh, satellite serious, much too short-lived for intelligent life to have evolved there, and never capable of supporting life on the planets and the scale of the solar system that I had deduced from the messages. Uh, it, it simply wouldn't work. Yes. No. So, if we were to, if if you were to consider that there's an intelligent civilization elsewhere that they want to send us information about themselves, like we did back in the 1970s with Voyager and the Golden Record, how would you think they would do that? Since they're more advanced than we are, well, they would give their probe sufficient versatility to re- respond to whatever situation it encountered. The fascinating thing about the 1920s records was that it did really look as if the characteristics of the messages were changing in response to the changes that were being made in the outgoing signals from Eindhoven. Um, It's almost like a dialogue of the deaf. They thought they were changing the signals in order to study a natural phenomenon more effectively. Uh But a a probe from another civilization, particularly a computer, would have thought, oh, they're giving me more scope to send more and more advanced dot pictures. It all appeared to make sense back then. But in the end, as I say, it, it unraveled. Um, eventually, I withdrew the whole thing. Um, by 1974, I, I thought, no, this isn't sustainable. I must be wrong. And it took another couple of years to get anybody to publish my retraction, which didn't attract anything like as much attention as the original story had, and I thought that was the end of it. But over subsequent years, Epsilon Botus has kept turning up in the historical record in, in some very intriguing ways. For example, it was going through the zenith when they built Stonehenge 1. When I was looking for a star, which might be an optical marker for some of the stuff that a colleague of mine called Alan Evans had discovered about Stonehenge 1, Guess which star popped out. Um, If there is anything to that original signal, um, it appears to be a a date marker rather than telling us where this supposed Bracewell probe had come from. Uh, And um, that idea is the one that I've been pursuing, trying to tie it in with other, other lines of research. The really frustrating thing about it is that, to this day, the uh, false information that's out there on the internet about uh, about the Bracewell probe, and particularly about a completely fictitious story called Black Knight that is out, out there. And oh, yes. Yeah. Every, yeah. For every, for every person who comes to my website looking for my current work, there must be, I don't know, 50 or more coming, looking for Black Knight, going going away again, disappointed. But uh, I can't help that. Black Knight doesn't exist. It's a, it's a complete fiction. I, I want to know, and I know the audience wants to know, how did your research become, or how did your name become so erroneously tied to the belief of a space probe called the Black Knight Satellite? You have to do this in chronological order. All right, we've done the bit from the 1920s radio echoes and Bracewell's hypothesis that he published in 59. Something that happened in the meantime 
was that in the early 50s, Clyde Tombo, the discoverer of Pluto, uh, using the new tracking cameras that had been developed for high-altitude rocket research at uh, White Sands in New Mexico, um, did a search for undiscovered natural small moons of the Earth. Uh, this was an idea that was popular in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, Jules Verne features it in From the Earth to the Moon. And Tombo decided to look and see if, the, if it's, uh, anything like that actually existed. And he, he found nothing. But um, a newspaper down in South America published a story that he had found two of them orbiting around 10,000 miles from the Earth in the plane of the equator. And Tombo spent the rest of his life de denying that one. Uh, I saw him live on Patrick Moore's Sky at Night program um, where, he where he denied it, and Patrick Moore subsequently quoted it in two of his books. Tombo was quite definite. No, he did not find anything of the kind. And indeed, if there were anything of the kind, it couldn't um, uh, by now with the, the quality of instruments, even in amateur hands now, let alone professional ones, everybody would be would be picking them up. Um, I know I know a chap who bought himself a, a um, what was it a, a twelve inch Celestron, and while he was teaching himself to use it, he managed to obtain pictures of communication satellites and geosynchronous orbit at more than twice the distance where you could actually see the solar panels. That's that, yeah, that's the kind of level of uh, instrumentation that's in amateur hands now. If there were natural moons of the Earth orbiting uh, at the kind of distance that we're talking about, um, people would be dis discovering and rediscovering them all the time. They, they don't actually exist. However, um, I did get correspondence from people at the time of the space probe affair saying, aren't you aware of, you know, of these moons that Clyde Tombaugh discovered? And to which the answer is, no, he didn't. And the other thing was, people were contacting me about two supposedly unidentified artificial satellites um, detected by the U.S. Air Force when they first set up tracking networks for satellites in the early 60s. Our late 50s, early 60s. When and again, immediately I knew that this wasn't this wasn't true. What actually happened was, at that time, the USAF was running a program called Corona to pioneer the development of spy satellites. And with the technology of the time, the Corona satellites of the Discoverer series, as the satellites themselves were, were known. They were making the first attempts to return payloads to Earth from orbit. It had never, never been done before. And these were returning film capsules. Um, they, some of them worked, and some of them partly worked. Some very curious things happened. One came down off Spitsbergen, which was nowhere near where it was supposed to be, and there was a race between the US and Russian navies to recover it which inspired Alison McLean's novelized station Zebra and the subsequent film. Um, and there was another one that was lost in the Pacific and um, recovered eventually by 
this Macedo Trieste too, but it uh, turned out that the capsule was crushed and the film was of no, no value. Um, but a couple of them simply failed to return to Earth. And they were then detected by radar. What had happened was the retro rockets had fired them completely out of phase, 180 degrees out of phase. And instead of returning into the atmosphere, the, the film capsules had gone into much higher orbit. But it was obvious what they were because the perigee altitudes closest to Earth were the same and so were the orbital inclinations. So they were very quickly identified. It happened once in 1959 and again in 1961, and bo both of them were quickly recognized to be what, the, what they actually were. Uh, they weren't unknown satellites at all. So um, I knew all of this. Um, yeah, and when people wrote to me about these two unidentified satellites. I said, no, no, we know what those were. Yeah, never, it's been long since been established. It wasn't until the 1980s that people started asking me about this supposed object called Black Knight. Um, and at first I thought, oh, this is just a joke. Um, the only Black Knight I'd ever heard of was a British experimental rocket, which was built by the uh, Havilland and Rolls-Royce as a, a initially to test warheads for Britain's Blue Street missile, but it was also used for upper atmosphere research. And it casually took the world altitude record for a single-stage rocket in, in 1959, went up to 400 miles, um, and eventually a derivative of it called Black Arrow launched Britain's one and only independent satellite in 1970. Now, um, the thing about that is uh, Britain's missile projects back in those days were um, the project names were color-coded so air-to-air -air missiles all had code names beginning with red like red duster and uh, red shoes which became the fire streak and the fire flash and uh, the naval ones all had names or the ballistic ones all had names beginning with blue, like Blue Water, uh, which was a ship-to-ship -ship weapon, and Blue Streak, which was an intermediate-range ballistic missile intended also to be a satellite launcher. And the Black Knight was a research vehicle. That was the name given to research. Black was the prefix given to research vehicles. And then, so that was it. And I said, well, no, Black Knight. It's not got anything to do with this, but nevertheless, somewhere along the line, somebody has shoehorned together the idea of the Bracewell probe in the orbit of the moon, uh, which was where whatever was generating the long-delayed echoes turned out to be, at the distance of the moon, but not in orbit round the moon, as it wrongly says on my Wikipedia page, which they won't allow me to correct. But um, at the distance of the moon, equidistant from the Earth and Moon, uh, was where that was supposed to be. Um, you've got the Tomlow satellites in the equatorial plane, which is at a considerably different angle from the orbit of the Moon, and much closer to us, supposedly, at 10,000 miles. You've got these two lost discoverer payloads, which were in highly elliptical orbits going up to about 1,000 miles, 
And to that, for good measure, people have added um, supposed voices heard by Gordon Cooper on his Project Mercury flight, uh, which I cannot find in any official record of it. And um, some pictures taken on the STS-88 mission when the space shuttle delivered the first U.S. payload to dock with the first Russian payload to start the assembly of the International Space Station. And again, we know what those were. They were dust covers and pieces of tape and things discarded during the assembly process. And they're not giant spaceships in orbit with the, the shuttle. And, and all of this has got lumped together into this Black Knight carry-on, which, as I say, they're all different objects. Most of them don't, most if not all of them don't exist. And, um, you know, nothing to do with me at all. But somehow my name's got lumped in with it. And uh, and, uh, an inaccurate version of part of my translation, of discarded part of my translation of the 1920s signals. Yeah. Now we've got my name on it as part of the Black Knight story. And there there is nothing to it. (laughs) That's the way it works. That's the way it works. You can put out research and conspiracy theorists, not that there's anything wrong with people speculating on certain things. Oh, sure. I do it all the time. Yeah, but it can come back and bite somebody on the rear end, such as yourself, someone that tries to separate themselves from just pure BS. This, Absolutely. If it was accurate, I'm sure you would take all the credit in the world for it. Oh, certainly. certainly uh, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's like G.K. Chesterton's story, The Blast of the Book. There's a bit where Father Brown is trying to explain to um, somebody that the supposedly supernatural events going on are all, are all have all been fabricated to cover up a genuine murder. And he says the hardest thing to convince a believer of is that nothing plus nothing plus nothing equals nothing. And mm-hmm. that's Black Knight. Sorry about that, anyone out there who believes in it, but that's the way it is. Yes, we're sorry to burst your bubble. Now, are you opposed to altogether that there might be unknown intelligent civilization sent probes or satellites or something that's within our space that might be invisible to us? Are you opposed to that belief? Um, I don't think there's anything here right now. The interesting thing about the long-delayed echo phenomenon, and this is pretty hard to explain, is that very shortly after I published my attempted translation, in 1975, the long-delayed echo effect more or less stopped. It's hardly been heard since. Hmm. And, And there is this whole curious business about asteroid 1991 VG, which whatever it is, was last in this vicinity and actually within the Earth-Moon system that year in 1975, it reflects sunlight as if it's got solar panels and it is definitely not one of ours. There is nothing we launched at that time that it could possibly be. Uh, Duncan Steele, the, the asteroid expert, published a paper suggesting it might be a probe from another civilization very hastily withdrew it. I think he got his fingers burned. But it does remain very interesting. And even more interestingly, if the Space Launch System first test had taken place last year as intended, um, the um, it was going to release 
a swarm of microsatellites, including a solar sail, which was intended to go to 1991 BG when it went past last year. As far as I know, uh, I've yet to see any observations that were actually made of it when it went past. But uh, obviously the the launch of the probe to it didn't happen. And whether whether you'll probably have to wait another 20 years now. That frustrating, but there you go. I shall be in my nineties, but I shall I shall look out for it with interest. Yes. Now I cannot pronounce this. Oh, mama, well, whatever it is, a cigar. Oh, yeah, yeah, the cigar-shaped asteroid. A Harvard uh, professor or space chief admits that it could be a dead civilization's alien probe. What do you think about that? Very interesting, um, but for a very different reason. Back when I became a full-time writer in 1970, among the stories that I sold and published back then were uh, one about a derelict starship entering the solar system, falling into orbit around the Earth, and another one about a mission to an interstellar comet with the intention of placing uh, a capsule on it to... Um, send data back as it recedes into interstellar space. And when the guys get there, they discover there's a cairn of similar packages that have been left in other solar systems that it's passed through. Both of those early stories of mine have now become uh, contemporary. <laughs> um, and uh, they may possibly be reprinted next year, which um, you know, I'm in negotiation with publishers for a book of my space travel stories, uh, particularly the early ones. Um, and uh, that could uh, that could very well happen. So yes, I, I am quite intrigued by it. However, already um, now that we know that it happens, another interstellar object has been discovered trapped in the orbit of Jupiter, and scientists are starting to think that they're in fact they're relatively common. Um, um, it could be that they're passing through through the solar system every year, but. Oumuamua is a very interesting object. Uh, you mentioned before about speculations. Here's a couple. Uh, Oumuamua entered the solar system from very close to the direction that we are traveling through interstellar space. It, according to some estimates, it was within four or five degrees, which is very small space on the celestial sphere. Could, could well be even closer. And it entered at roughly the same velocity at which we're traveling with respect to the surrounding medium, which, if true, and uh, just today I've seen a report that says it was actually going quite a bit faster than that, so it may not be true. But if it is true, it would mean that it was hanging in our path, as if almost as if waiting for us. Interestingly enough, it has left the solar system traveling towards a star called Ross 248, which is about 10 light years away and thought might possibly have an Earth-like planet. That's that's curious too. Um, But if it were true that it was, you know, the characteristics of its orbit, well, the way I just mentioned, that either it was hanging in our path, waiting for us, as if waiting for us, let's emphasize that, or like like the signals in Gregory Benford's novel Timescape, they would actually it would actually be from the future, hmm. sent back from where Earth is going to be. Isn't that interesting? It is. I've always speculated that if aliens are visiting the Earth, that they 
maybe from our distant future, a, a future where the earth has been mostly destroyed and humans no longer look human. Mm, well, or maybe they're just colored green, which brings us on to another matter altogether. Oh, yes, it does. The Green Children yeah. of Woolpit. What can you yeah. tell us about that interesting story? I, I came across this story when I was a student. I was, uh, at that point, uh, okay, a little bit of background. I was, I wanted to be an astronaut. That was my big ambition in life. And I, I was going to be a try and get into the scientific astronaut program back in the, back in the 60s. This was my plan. Um, I went to university to do maths and astronomy, uh, intending to go on to a PhD in astronautics in London. Um, and it turned out my maths were just not good enough for that. Good enough to get me there, uh, but I couldn't keep up with the class at university level. Uh, it was just too much for me. I changed faculties to take an arts degree while trying to work out what to do with my life, now that my biggest ambition had gone. And I took logic out of curiosity, gained a merit certificate, and was offered the chance to go for a, a joint honours degree in English literature and philosophy, which, starting from where I was starting from, meant taking all of the history of literature papers because I hadn't time to develop a specialist subject. Now, in the Elizabethan and Jacobean period, which was paper two of the ones I was going to be setting. One of the set texts that year was The Anatomy of Melancholy by Robert Burton. Um, it's a medical textbook. It is, however, a fascinating piece of work. It's a huge piece of work. The edition, the Everyman edition I was working with ran to three volumes. Burton interspersed the medical sections with everything he knew about everything. He was a Renaissance man. It was still possible to know pretty well everything about everything, and he put it all down. Right in the middle of volume two of the three lies his chapter on meteorology and astronomy, which he calls A Digression of the Air. And in it, one of the things that he's most fascinated by is what to him is the comparatively recent realization that the planets are in independent are worlds and in independent orbits around the sun and not encased in solid crystalline spheres as had been believed for the previous 1600 years since Ptolemy. And he got, I think it's an extraordinary leap for somebody to make at his early stage in that game. He immediately concludes from that that on the one hand, that space travel may be possible, which some newfangled wits may think shall sometime or other find out. Um, but also, from his perspective, he's saying, well, if, if the planets are worlds, they must be inhabited, because God wouldn't have created them for no purpose. Um, therefore, there must be people in Mars and in Venus. And then comes this great throwaway line, it may be that those green children that fell from the sky, which Nubrigensis writes of in his time, came from thence. And I hit this, and I thought, good grief, little green men. And in the early 17th century, I highlighted it with a couple of exclamation marks and read on. And it wasn't for quite some time afterwards I went back to it. But the turns out Nubrigensis was William of Newborough who is regarded as a reliable 12th century source. 
And the same story is told by Ralph of Coggeshall, who's also regarded as a reliable historian. But the most fascinating thing about it on this level is that they weren't in direct touch. One was in the north of England and the other was in the south. Uh, there's no evidence they ever communicated. And in fact, they tell the story from quite different viewpoints and in diff with different vocabularies, which you don't, you don't get normally in medieval chronicles. If they have a wonderful story, one chronicle copies from another and may add or subtract details, but you can tell because the wording is the same. They're all, they're all copying one another. Could they have both this, witnessed the same event, or would this be separate events with different children? Oh, no, very definitely the same event. But William of Newborough interviewed witnesses to the children's arrival, and he was trying to disprove the story. He saw himself as a ghostbuster. Mm. Um, he, he was concerned that too many miracles were being credited, and that yeah, it was it was the passage to the tourist trade of those days to get yourself on the pilgrim route. But he, he reckoned there was too much credulity, too, too many stories were being believed. He set out to try and disprove the majority of them. He couldn't disprove this one, although he tried. And he said, my biggest problem with this is I don't understand it. He said, a miracle is supposed to illustrate some point of scripture, and I can't see the point. But... I have interviewed so many witnesses and witnesses of such quality that I am convinced that this actually happened and it's not for me to question God's purpose. So he says, let each man say of this what he will, uh, um, but it does not grieve me to have set down this most strange and wonderful event. Uh, Ralph of Coggeshall was coming from a completely different direction. He knew the family with whom the girl who survived, the children were but a girl and a boy, and the, the girl survived, the boy died, the girl lived into adulthood and was living with the family that Ralph of Coggeshall was in, in touch with at the time he, he wrote his account down. So you're coming from completely different directions on it. Yeah, virtually all of the facts are the same, and the ones that aren't are significant. But the, the thing was, at a date which William of Newborough puts in the reign of King Stephen, and Ralph of Coggeshall, by implication, puts in this subsequent reign of Henry II. Two very strange children came out of an ancient earthwork at a village called Woolpit, eight miles east of Bury St Edmunds, on what is now the, the M4 motorway. Uh, and they, were, they wore clothing of a colour and material never seen before, spoke a language that nobody recognised, and were coloured green all over. Now, a lot of people in modern times have tried to explain this in terms of, oh, they were just from two or three villages away and people were so isolated then they couldn't understand one another. It doesn't add up. Uh, I mentioned the pilgrim trade. Bury St Edmunds at that time, Woolpit was then on the pilgrim route from the coast to Bury St Edmunds, and that was the major pilgrim route in England until the shrine of Thomas a Becket was established some years later at Canterbury. So pilgrims would have been passing through the village of Woolpit all the time. It was an aspiring market town. It was on the make. Uh, the villagers would have been able to offer people a bed for the night and a meal and, and a drink and pretty well any, any language in Europe, I would imagine. Uh, and they certainly would have seen just about every imaginable variety of medieval clothing passing through if they didn't recognize either the clothing or the language. 
that is highly significant. Do we have but, an account of what the clothing looked like? No. No? Just, no, just um, color and material never seen before. You start thinking shell suits and <laughs> yeah, you know, who knows what. But um, um, there is no account. But the crucial thing was that they were colored green all over. And initially they seemed to have been roughly treated. It wasn't. It was quickly found out that they were green all over. And in that state, they were put on public exhibition for the benefit of the passing tourists. And it was some time before it occurred to anybody that might need to eat. But when they were offered food, they wouldn't accept it. Somewhere around this point, common sense kicked in. And the children were taken to the home of a man called Richard de Kalner. Modern writers, because de Kalner is extremely hard to trace, we'll come back to that in a minute, but modern writers have tended just to jump to the conclusion that he was the lord of the manor or something of that kind. And because Ralph describes him as a sort of knight, they've assumed that he was probably a fairly Fairly poor, you know, a sword for hire, essentially, you know, a masterless name. None of this is true. You really have to dig for it. The thing was, they were taken to the home of Richard de Calma, who was actually wealthy and powerful, but very, very reclusive. It makes him hard to trace, as I said, but that's where they were taken. Uh, quite a distance away and crossing the land of two other barons to get to him, which suggests that the villagers knew where they were going with the children at this point. And there they still wouldn't eat and nearly starved to death before the bean harvest started. Um, they recognized the color of the plant, so they didn't know which part of the plant was ed edible, but they started eating and were weaned onto a, a more normal diet as time went on lost the green colour. And uh, the Chronicle then, uh, William's Chronicle then says, it seemed to the wise that they might be christened, and even that was done. And at that point, uh, I, I was doing my own translation uh, because I had realised that modern translations weren't adequate. I dedicated the book, my book to the principal teacher of Latin at my old school. Could never have done this without his efforts. Um, at that point, both chronicles go into formal Latin. And what modern writers are translating as she said and they said um, is actually gave evidence or swore on oath. And I, I, I thought, this has got to be significant. I rang a friend of mine who had a diploma in theology from the Roman Catholic College of Cardinals and said to him, do you know what that's about? And he replied, Oh, yes, everybody knows that. I said, well, sorry, I don't. Explain it to me. He said, even today in the Roman Catholic Church, a christening in controversial circumstances must be preceded by an inquisitio, which is a for, a, with a small i, which is a formal hearing conducted by a bishop. And anybody, any clerk reading that story in de Calna's time, um, in William of Newbury's time and Ralph's, would have got that straight away. As soon as they saw gave evidence and swore on oath, they'd, they'd go, oh, there was an inquisitio con conducted by a bishop. And so this is where it gets very interesting. The bishop asks them who and from whence they were. And they reply, we are people of this land of St. Martin. And everybody has been taking it that that's the name of the place they came from, but it's not. 
the land of St. Martin was the Essex property of the Church of St. Martin's Le Grand, which was the principal sanctuary in England, under the authority of the Bishop of London, who was also the superior of Coggeshall Abbey, where Ralph's account was written down. So what is happening here is he's not asking them, where are you from? He's asking them, who are you? And they've obviously been coached and want to reply. It suggests there are observers present, quite possibly from Rome, because when they say we are people of the land of St. Martin, what they're saying is we are under your protection. And the bishop pretends not to get it. And he says, basically, that sounds all right. Do they believe in our saviour there? Which, if, they, if he thought they had just told, told him they were from a land named after a Christian saint, would be a pretty weird question. But it's obviously, again, it's obviously all been rehearsed because the girl says, oh, yes, you can't see the place for churches, which is a detail she didn't bother with in adult life when she was free and clear. And again, you know, this is the right answer. And the third question, does the sun rise or set there? And the significance of that is that in medieval times, it was believed there was no sun in fairyland. All they have to say is yes. But at that point, they couldn't bring themselves to lie. And they launched into a description of life in the twilight zone of a planet with a trapped rotation, a country of permanent twilight separated by a broad river from a country of permanent sunlight. And you can picture the people looking after them, De Kalna and his people going, oh, for God's sake, shut up. <laughs> but they got away with it. Um, mm. Permission was given for them to be christened. And they were. The boy died soon afterwards of depression, which is a condition accentuated by green beans. It's one of the foods that people subject to mencolia are advised not to eat. They contain a compound called tyramine, which accentuates depression. But the girl grew up and married, and married a man said to be said to have married a man living at King's Lynn. Uh, need to. Pause here for a moment. The thing about the planet with the trapped rotation is that Burton knew those conditions could not be found anywhere on Earth. He, he knew enough medieval Renaissance astronomy for that. And that was why he suggested that the children had come from Mars or Venus, even although they came out of a hole in the ground. He knew they had, were describing life on another world. And he he, he then adds, Aaron Elvis, that they gave many other details of that land to those who were inclined to be curious, but it would be tedious to set them down here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're just yeah. going, oh, you old so-and-so. <laughs> yes. I've got to ask you, um, th this happened about, what, 1100s, correct? 11, yeah. Going back to the one thing between the two chronicles that doesn't match. Yes. Uh, and back then, wouldn't they have been seen as supernatural beings? I mean, I know you even mentioned fairyland, correct? Is, mm -hmm. is that yeah. something they thought that maybe these were fairy-like changeling children? Oh, yeah. Clearly, even, even, if, um, even if the people involved knew they weren't, they had to go through the motions of proving they weren't to the satisfaction of the church. And that um, would be hard to prove, considering they were green, right? Yeah, well, but they weren't green by then. They were, as I say, un, un, they were unquestionably human. The girl, the girl married and had two children. Um, the... Uh, whose descendants I have traced to the present, by the way. Um, the, um, but the thing is, yes, that was the big danger. 
that if the bishop had found against them, um, then they would not have had souls. They'd, they'd be some kind of productions of the devil, and then, you know, they would have been they would have been burned. Well, um, yeah, I have traced, I believe, traced the girl in the historical record, and they christened her Agnes, the the girl they couldn't burn. The thing about St. Agnes was she had to be beheaded because when they tried to burn her at the stake, the faggots wouldn't light. Uh, and I can just picture De Calna and, and Richard Barr, the man she married, walking out at the end of the hearing going, by Jove, that was a close one. We'll have to christen her Agnes. Um, it, it, yeah, it, uh, it, could, it could so easily at that point have gone the other way, except that. Uh, by this time, the king was taking a major interest in the case, and the Bishop of London was very much the king's man. And if the king said, "I want them christened," <laughs> he uh, he was going to authorise it. Yeah, yeah. He was a tough character, the Bishop of London, but he did he did what that was. No. He he backed Henry all the way through the Beckett affair. Um, he was uh, he he knew what he was doing. So at any at any rate, the thing was. Having latched on to the, the fact that um, there seemed to be something substantial to this story, I, I decided to look into it further. I was covering a conference uh, in London on what became the Rosetta Space Program, which recently ended. Um, and I was covering that for the Glasgow Herald. And at the end of that, I went up to Bury St. Edmunds to do some intending to go. Well, I went out to Woolpit thinking I would just get some local colour for an article. But beforehand, I got together with a history graduate friend of mine, and we worked out a list of questions. So I was made very welcome in Wilpert. The National Geographic documentary on this makes out that I get a hostile reception, but it wasn't like that at all. I was made very welcome. They opened up the local history museum for me out of season, that kind of thing. But in reply to my questions, they kept saying, you have to go to the county records office for that sort of thing. And so... I did, and I joined the County Archives Research Network, and they referred me in those days to the card index and the filing cabinet. And I, this was where I started to find out the facts about Richard de Calna, uh, who he was, what he was, and it changed the whole perspective of the story. And now we're back from the break with Duncan Moonen, and we are discussing the green children of Woolpit. And you know, Duncan... Uh, one thing that I remember from reading a book, and, and it was really interesting, is that the children, they started to hear what they thought were bells. And the next thing that they knew, they were in a strange land. It, it, that kind of reminds me of the television series on stars of what, what's it called? Outlander, which also takes place in Scotland mm-hmm. at uh, Magical Rocks, whatever it is. There's a magical rock, almost like Stonehenge. And they will ring out, and if you touch it, you will be transported to a distant past in Scotland. Is that something that you might consider, that what they were hearing were was something of a time travel type of, uh, I don't know, uh, um, an anomaly, natural anomaly that transported them to Woolpit? Let's, let's look at that. This aspect of it is one of its most intriguing aspects because it's one of the very few differences between the two accounts, between uh, Ralph's and, and Williams. In the hearing, the children are asked how they came to be in 
uh, suddenly appearing in, Wol in Wolpit in this ancient earthwork. And uh, they reply, well, we don't know, but what we can tell you is that we were out with our father's livestock on a certain day. It happened because we were out with our father's livestock on a certain day. The Latin word queer, because, is, is causative. It means they're saying it's got to be read with the certain day, but this would not have happened to them if they hadn't been out that day. They shouldn't have been at that point. In Williams, in Ralph's account, they give, um, they spin a yarn, or the girl spins a yarn. This is an adult life about wandering through a network of caves and coming, following the sound of bells and coming out at Woolpit. <laughs> um, well, Woolpit stands on Pleistocene clay. The water table's only a few feet below the surface, and in medieval times, buildings didn't have foundations. They were built on rafts. It was much more marshy then than it is now. Uh, there quite simply are no caves under Woolpit uh, then or now. Um, it's, not, it's not geologically possible. However, in... In the hearing, quite the, the answer was quite different. Because we were out with our father's livestock on a certain day, we heard a great sound of bells like the one which they now tell us is the bells of Bury St Edmunds. Uh, Bury St Edmunds Abbey at that time had just about the largest bell in England, um, so that people, when mass was being sung in, in the abbey, People miles away in the fields could cross themselves at the appropriate moments. But it's not the bells of Bury St. Edmunds. Again, this is an illusion you get in modern translations. We have the bells of Bury St. Edmunds. No, they're very, very definite. It was a sound like the bells of Bury St. Edmunds. And then suddenly, as if placed in some absence of mind, we found ourselves in the field where you were reaping. Now, fascinating thing about that is... This kid not only knows what amnesia is, she knows she hasn't got it. Suddenly, as if placed in some absence of mind, they were instantaneously transported. So I, I started looking into what possibly this might relate to. And the thought that occurred to me was, if you've got a planet with a trapped rotation, turning on its axis, keeping over a, a year, keeping the same face always towards its sun, very possibly, like Venus, it will have no magnetic field. As far as we know, a relatively fast rotation is needed for a planetary magnetic field. Mercury is as long since frozen. It's, it's weak, it's still there, but it's frozen. And Mars doesn't have one, possibly for other reasons. But, um, but the key thing is it looks as if a fast rotation like the Earth is, is required. And when I looked into the records of solar activity and disturbances of the magnetic field, Chunk called Danny Kane put me onto this. I discovered that in the second half of the 12th century, particularly, the sun was extremely disturbed. Naked eye sunspots were common following the 11 year cycle. There were recounts of them in the Chinese and Korean records and Japanese records. And massive displays of aurora, with red, or, red aurora seen all the way down into Syria. And uh, 1173 is the peak of it all. And that, for other circumstantial reasons that we can go into, is, is it appears to be when the children actually did appear. The date, the, the um, William of Newborough's statement that it happened in the reign of King Stephen actually doesn't add up when you look at the dates. It's not compatible with Ralph of Coggeshall's dates. 
it's got to be later in the century. And it really does look like 1173 was, was when it happened. So I went to a physicist friend. There's a big spike in solar activity that year. I went to a physicist friend and I said, if you've got a matter transmitter linking two Earth-like planets, one's got no magnetic field, and at this end, the magnetic field is being seriously disturbed by solar activity. Can you tell me how it might go off by accident? And he said, oh, yes, yes. He said, tell me what makes it go wrong. It's much easier to figure out how it works. And he came back with a description, entirely speculative, of course, but a, a description of a matter transmitter, which could be expected to be triggered accidentally in those circumstances. And uh, so, yeah, put it this does seem to fit, the, by and large, to fit the fact. Uh, the children said, for instance, that when they found themselves in the pit, the ancient earthwork, which I think are the moats surrounding a feature that still persists at the village called the, the Ladies' Well, initially they took cover um, in the pit, in the, the shade of the trees, because they were stunned by the brightness and heat of the sun. They'd never seen the sun before. And then they made a run for it, and they were caught. Making a run for it is quite, quite informative. It tells you the gravity wasn't significantly different. That's an interesting fact. And in fact, when you look at all the facts in the story, it's amazing, amazing how much you can deduce from it, uh, like which hemisphere of the planet they came from that they lived in. And, um, yeah, there are details like that. Um, with a bunch of my colleagues, I, I, did, I did what science fiction writers called world, world building. And we, we worked out the characteristics of this planet in considerable detail. And the stuff that is being discovered now about exoplanets, uh, particularly exoplanets of um, red dwarf stars and slightly larger ones, does suggest that we were very much that we were on the right track. Um, our, in fact, our model of of this situation is that it was an it was artificially created, probably a crater chain on the terminator of this planet um, that had been made terraformed and made habitable, and and that there were still links with Earth. Um, this is where we come to the thing where what we are essentially looking at is abductions for experimental purposes with the knowledge, if not the connivance, of at least some of the terrestrial authorities, um, which is going to bring us back to who de Calma was and where he fits into the picture. Um, but it really looks like the X-Files in the 12th century, and that's what we seem to be dealing with. I can scarcely believe it, but that's what it does really look like. And other, other categories of expl explanation just don't work. When the National Geographic documentary was being filmed, they shot a number of interviews with uh, skeptics who had other explanations, and they didn't use them. But at the end of it all, the producer said to me, I'm not saying you're right, but what strikes me is that you're the only one who's trying to explain the whole story. All these other people are coming up with explanations for a bit of it and saying, and then we can discard the rest. But if you put them all together, you'd have to discard everything. Um, she said, and, you know, the explanation you've got, wild as it seems, is the, is the, the only one that actually fits, fits all the facts as given. So are we ready to go back to talk about the Calma? I think you need to know this. Sure. 
Okay. Like I said, Richard de Kalner is very hard to trace. And most modern writers have been getting him all wrong. Particularly, they've been assuming he was a lot younger than he actually was. There was a, a cousin of mine who did some research in Norfolk that I actually found the, found the link to him. And it turns out to be well before the time of this incident. Uh, at that time, the age of majority was 14. De Kalna appears in the record for the first time in 1130, which means the latest he was born was 1116. But that is nearly 60 years before the appearance of the Green Children, if I've got that right. He was the youngest son of a prominent, very prominent family of churchmen. That was even more difficult to find because the bishops of the time are normally referred to just by their Christian name and the name of their see. So you've got Nigel of Ely and Everard of Norwich and so on. And you really have to dig deeply into the church records to discover that they were all surnamed de Calna. Uh, it turns out that Richard de Calna's grandfather was chaplain to William the Conqueror. His great uncle was the Bishop of Salisbury and Regent of England under uh, uh, Henry I and Chancellor of England. Um, his father had his turn at Chancellor, but he was, um, he became Bishop of Ely. Um, his half-brother became Chancellor, and he was, he was Bishop of London after the guy we were previously talking about. His uncle was the Bishop of Norwich. His cousin was Archdeacon of Leicester and subsequently became Bishop of Lincoln. And this was a very powerful, very wealthy family with property all, all over England. They took their surname from Calm in Wiltshire, which, interestingly enough, is near Stonehenge. Um, but um, the, um, the, the, the initial mystery is how did the Calna get to be a knight at all? Because even, even by that time, the whole institution of knighthood had become formalized, and really you had to be the son of a knight to become a knight unless you got a battlefield promotion. And the, the dates and other circumstantial evidence suggest that de Calna actually went on the Second Crusade and came back as a, a knight. But he wasn't, any, he wasn't just any kind of a knight. He had at least 15 and possibly 23 or more other knights in service to him, which makes him a vavasseur, intermediate between a knight and a baron. And he, again, circumstantial evidence, but it looks as if he was also an associate Knight Templar, a married brother. He couldn't be a full brother because he was because he was a married man. But um, all of this explains this throwaway line of Ralph of Cogitals. Remember, he's writing about somebody he knew, where he says he's a sort of knight, uh, a certain kind of knight. Um, yeah, that's yes, he was. He was special. But the most remarkable thing about him is his disappearance. There's no record of him during the Civil War between Stephen and Matilda. There's no record. A lot of the De Calnas were heavily involved in that on both sides. But there's no record of Richard De Calna himself. And at the end of the war, when his great-uncle's financial records were restarted under Henry II, the very first entry in 
The very first role reads Richard de Kalna and Richard de Hastings, the English master of the Templars, are excused all taxes in perpetuity because of their outstanding service to the crown. This is almost unheard of. People get excused a tax or several taxes. Yeah, but to be excused all taxes makes you invisible. You just effectively disappear from the records. They can't, for the rest of his life, for the next nearly 40 years, in fact, more than 40 years, the Carnot appears only when he occasionally witnesses a gift to the church made by one of his family. And otherwise, there's no sign of him. He's M. He's, he's, he's the head of the Secret Service. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, and this is the guy to whom the villagers took the children, crossing the land of two, the lands of two barons, more wealthy and powerful than he nominally was, to get to him. Um, this is becoming more and more obviously not coincidental and not trivial. Now, in 1173, Henry II faced the biggest crisis of his reign. He was the most powerful king England ever had. He came very close to uniting Europe through marrying off his, his sons and daughters to, to the sons and daughters in other kingdoms. Uh, he, in 1173, in consequence of the murder of Thomas and Becket, his queen and three of his four sons rebelled against him, all of them except the future King John, who hadn't got the nerve for it. And they, they did this in alliance with the kings of Scotland and France, uh, which brought in Flanders, and with more than half of the barons in England. It really looked as if Henry's reign was, was finished. And at the point when war broke out along the boundary between Normandy and France, Henry was over there organising the defence in late July of 1173. And suddenly he disappears from the record for a fortnight. Um, and in particular for four crucial days. Um, we don't know where he went, what he did, but we do know he went to East Anglia. His expenses were met by uh, the sheriff of, uh, uh, let me think, which county was it? Uh, um, immediately, immediately to the west, anyway. He went to, um, he went to East Anglia for four days. And there's no record of what he did except that he put a garrison of crack troops into the castle next to Woolpit. Now, Woolpit at that time had a population of under 100 people. It was worth £10 a year. And Henry had already annexed it from Bury St Edmunds Abbey 13 years earlier, as if he was expecting something to happen. Um, the troops that he put into Hagnet Castle next to Woolpit were almost certainly Templars. Again, it's circumstantial evidence, but the way they're described in the text, almost certainly they were. And uh, what happened next was, a couple of months later, the Earl of Leicester, who was in open rebellion, invaded East Anglia at the head of a Flemish army, was informed of this crack garrison at Woolpit, turned aside to take them out, where they surrendered as a, caught by surprise, they surrendered as a unit 
which was, un, again, unheard of in medieval times. You just didn't do that. You'd slaughtered the foot soldiers and kept the, the nobles for ransom. But they, these guys surrendered as a unit of 300, um, all of which slowed down the Flemish advance sufficiently that the English armies converged on them and, and wiped them out. And at which point the rebellion just collapsed. Uh, shortly afterwards, a kinsman of Henry II captured the King of Scotland when he was out hunting. And suddenly everybody thought, oh, siding with the King's a better idea after all. And it was over. And it must have seemed to Henry, and I would guess, as if the children had been sent to trigger this series of events and save his kingdom, which explains why he would have instructed the Bishop of London to get them christened at the point when he received news that the boy was dying. I think it all hangs together. It's all circumstantial. But um, uh, I was in discussion with a chap at uh, the University of London who doesn't believe it. Um, we agree, we've agreed to differ on various points of it, but he said, you have got a very good story. <laughs> it's a great construct. But um, I, 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 against that, I put a remark that my late friend John Braithwaite made when I'd been working on it for about six months. And what he said to me was, if somebody makes up a story like this, they make it up out of whole cloth. And then they put in a few real names and places to make it look convincing. But when you check up on the facts, you find that people couldn't have been in those places at those times. And the story is fiction. And they said, Nothing, no fiction will stand up to the kind of intensive inquiry you're conducting. Um, and indeed, that inquiry continued for the next 10 years and just went on clicking together. The, the, facts, the facts add up to a story you can't prove, but the, it makes, a, to my mind, a very convincing account of what actually was going on. Yes. Now, I actually have uh, a few thoughts went, went through my mind, a couple. And uh, mm -hmm. back to their language. Was this just a strange accent that they were speaking with, or was it an entirely different language altogether? So, as described, it was an entirely different language. Okay. Now, the situation in medieval England at that time was that particularly people like de Kalna were effectively trilingual. De Kalna would have talked to his priest in Latin. He would have talked to his equals in Norman French, and he'd have talked to his estate workers and his staff in English, uh, early English. And the young girl would have had to become fluent <coughs> in, all th in all three of those to do what she did, because one of the details Ralph gives as he, he says that she continued for many years in the service of the aforesaid knight. And again, modern writers have been assuming that this was um, uh, domestic service. And in Glenn Maxwell's play about the about Wilpert, uh, he had he's got the Calmus having her scrub floors as a punishment at one point in the action. But it wasn't like that at all. In fact, um, medieval houses then didn't have female servants. And um, when I eventually discovered this, uh, I came across a line that said, the medieval serving wench is a Hollywood invention. And indeed, books of etiquette at the time, advising young men on how to behave if they're taken into uh, into service with a, a person of 
property. It's, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on don't get yourself into trouble with the local women. Um, you know, you'll lose your job, you'll, you'll lose your place. Um, they, so I then looked up the, the categories of medieval service, feudal service. And the phrase Ralph uses is actually not for domestic service or farm working you know, or anything like that. It's administrative service. What he's telling us is that she was running something for the Um probably at least one of his estates. So she would have needed three languages at that point. Mm. And the other she's thought I was... Yeah, she's obviously very talented. Yes, and the other thought I was having is that I know that the children came from a world that was dimly lit and it was a little different from ours. So could it have been, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the hollow earth theory where there could be a civilization inside of our planet. It's not getting the light of the sun particularly, but they're getting some kind of a light from somewhere. Do, do you think it could be somehow involved? I don't believe a word. You don't. I really don't. Um, the, you know, the more we find out about the interior of the Earth, the more interesting it gets. But yeah, it's not hollow. Yes. Um, yeah, there's, there's nothing, nothing like that down there. Um, Could it have been and, a cave uh, civilization? You think? I don't believe it. I don't okay. believe it. Um, I. What fits the description is the is the planet with the transportation. Um, what is and what is particularly clear is that if anything, this was a more advanced society than medieval England. Um, whatever language they spoke, and I do find that a very intriguing question. It was one that it was one that wasn't recognised, but the stuff that you get, like the bit about amnesia, for instance, it all it all suggests that she was able to adapt. And it's, it's a point that's actually quite well made in Star Trek a number of times. And Spock says, you know, it's easy for a civilized man to pretend to be a barbarian, but you can't go the other way. Uh, you can't just instantly masquerade as a civilized person if you come from a, um, a primitive society. That is it true. And um, I think, yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever they were from, it certainly wasn't the primitive tribe. Yeah. Uh, going back to the green color thing, um, there's a there's a myth about a condition called chlorosis, which supposedly turns young women green. Uh, I've dug into that, it, and it turns out this is one of the diseases that never were. In the early days of the Industrial Revolution, this was a catch-all name for a, a number of conditions including what we'd now call anorexia nervosa. Um, nobody actually had a patient to turn green. They all knew somebody who knew somebody who had. But, of course, it's a metaphor. It's a, it's a metaphor for sexual inexperience. And some of the, some of the early, late, late 18th, early 19th medical books uh, say quite explicitly the cure for the green sickness is, is marriage. Um, the... But um, it didn't actually turn people green. Now, I do know um, some people have an allergic reaction to gold, which can turn their skin color green. I haven't come across that. I've come across arsenic 
poisoning can turn people blue. It happens to my um, wife. In anything that's gold, if she wears it too long, I don't know if it's pure gold or if it's just plated gold, but her go- her skin will turn green. Really? Yes, wherever she's it's touched it. So, um, I did discover that um, uh, turning green can be a symptom of acute retention of bile products, but it's it's a precursor to death. Yeah, at the point where the patient turns green, then. That it's, they're almost beyond recovery. Mm. Um, and uh, definitely that wasn't the case with the, the children because they they lived without food for a considerable period and they, they made a and they made a good, a good well, the girl in particular made a good recovery from it. Um, and I found it suggested, for instance, that iron deficiency will turn people green, but I can't find any. I can't find that anywhere. What we do know is that iron deficiency in childhood will stunt intelligence. And you think, God, if she was, if she, if she in adult life was running estates and speaking several languages, and you know, married to uh, one of Henry II's senior ambassadors by that time, um, you think, God, if that's after her intelligence has been stunted, what would she have been like? Other? That is true. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm. But you see, nobody is actually looking at what she said, and what she said, quite as, as quoted as saying, quite in so many words in Ralph's Chronicle, is that it, they were dyed that colour. That is the word used, and furthermore, the implication in the sentence is that it was vegetable dye. She said, all of the things and all of the people in the land that they came from were de- dyed with the same green colour. But the phrasing of all of the things suggests that she's talking about vegetable things. Um, so, yeah, vegetable dye. So I started thinking, well, why would that be? And I came across it almost by, no, almost by chance, you might say, in uh, one of Richard Dawkins' books called A River Out of Eden, in which he has a chapter on predator eyesight. The interesting thing about which is that predator eyesight is highly specialized. Proverbially, the frog will starve to death surrounded by dead flies because it will only respond to movement. But polar bears, for instance, have to eat when they come out of hibernation. It's essential. And their eyesight is adapted to conditions at that time of year. And giant cats have preferred times of day at which they hunt and their eyesight's adapted to those. And so it goes on. So I thought to myself, there's a hint in Ralph's, Ralph, Ralph O'Coggishall's account of the, the, the story that the children were actually hiding from something when, when they got transported, um, taking cover. Um, the verb he uses for we were following the animals is actually a passive verb. It says the animals were being followed, as if possibly the children were hiding from something else that was following the animals. And um, I thought, okay, if there's something coming across the river with eyesight adapted to hunt in permanent sunlight, and it comes into twilight, if you're dyed the same color as the vegetation, uh, can you hide effectively? Is it camouflage? Um, 
I think that's as good an explanation as any. Yes. It's far simpler than any of the ones involving genetic engineering or little known, little known diseases or, or whatever. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think that's very possibly what we're looking at here. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going from green children to the big gray man of Ben McDewey. Am I pronouncing that name right? Yes. Well, I did a bit of research on this a few years back. My book is illustrated by Sidney Jordan, who was the creator of the world's longest-running science fiction comic strip called Jeff Hawk. And in one of the stories in the later version of Jeff Hawk, for which I, I wrote myself for a while, I didn't write this one, but in one of them, there is actually a story involving the Grey Man. So in writing notes on it when it was reprinted by the Jeff Hawk Club a few years back, I did look into this. That's interesting. I wouldn't say it's totally convincing, but in this, in allegedly, there is this figure of a great, a great grey man that haunts that particular mountain. And in the story, um, it's a um, when it appears, it's a it's a version of the Brock Inspector, the you know, the, where the shadow of the somebody in the in the mist is. A huge shadow appears surrounded by a, a halo. It's a bit like the, the glory, which can be seen sometimes from airplanes, where the shadow of the aircraft is surrounded by a glowing halo. It's, it's a similar effect that is reported on mountains, particularly in the Alps, the Brock Inspector. But um, the actual accounts of the, the grey man aren't, aren't like that. The... It has been called Scotland's Bigfoot. People see these, or not usually they don't see anything. They hear um, footsteps which aren't echoes of their own, or breathing which isn't an echo, a magnified echo of their own, as if something big is following them, and they get into a hell of a scare over it, and. Uh, Nobody's seen anything more, supposedly, than a shadowy figure. You're just left going, well, there we are. <laughs> the highlands of Scotland are full of monsters, and Loch Ness is only, is only one case of many. Um, have you ever seen anything, living in Scotland all of your life, have you ever seen anything that cannot be explained away as a natural creature that we already know of? No, I can't say that I have, personally. Wow. But other people have. Um, there are a lot of accounts. Uh, as I say, Loch Ness is the famous one. But um, do you believe in uh, the Loch Ness monster? Uh, yeah, jury's out. I don't really. But yeah, um, it's quite an interesting remark the late Bob Shaw made on the subject. He said uh, they've done these studies that prove there aren't enough fish in Loch Ness to feed a family of monsters. Says, but they're only counting the fish that are left after the monsters have eaten the rest. I like that. <laughs> um, but some of the other ones, um, Loch Morer, uh, he says, crossing his fingers for good luck, um, you know, even to mention the, the creature that's supposed to live there is supposed to be extremely bad luck. Um, but there are lots of eyewitness accounts of it. Uh, it does make you wonder. Um, um, like I say, you go back into, into folklore, Every ford has its kelpie. Um, every road has its spectre of some kind or other. Uh, the, the Highlanders and the Islanders were 
very much into this. Um, and I, I wouldn't say there's no possibility of of any such thing. All right. Skeptic, skeptical, skeptical, but not uh, not totally disbelieving. Well, it's, it's good to be a skeptical believer mm-hmm. because I know you believe in time travel. You believe in that it's possible that people can travel from one world to another, right? Yeah, yeah. I'll buy that. Mm-hmm. And uh, but let's go to the Side Hill Stone Circle. This is something that you and a group of people that you put together, I guess, put together, right? That you built this. Mm-hmm. What yep. was it, and why did you build it? Was there a purpose? There was, as so often happens, um, projects in astronomy and space get happen for reasons that not directly connected with them. Um, I suppose the extreme example is that um, when President Kennedy was looking for a big project, um, you know, to put his put his stamp on, and they told they told him the only thing that was doable was the moon, and he, he said, "Tell me it's not the so and so moon." But um, Johnson was determined it would be the moon, and it was. Um, the now, the political reasons why Kennedy wanted wanted a big project of that kind um, have not, not got anything to do with the moon or, or the results that were obtained from it, what was achieved. Nevertheless, it was done and an extraordinary achievement it was. Now, in the case of the Sight Hill Stone Circle, what was going on was that um, the Scottish National Party was running a successful campaign um, for uh, getting big results for independence on the case for North Sea oil belonging to Scotland rather than to the Britain as a whole. Um, I've seen the details of the case, and yes, it's, it's a good case, but the thing was the Labour government of the day decided they had to do something to counter this and show that the money was was being put back into Scotland. And they set up because unemployment in Scotland was high at the time, they set up the Jobs Creation Programme, which supposedly made large sums of money available for public works, but actually the money was very difficult to get. In the case of the city of Glasgow, the city was offered a sum of £4 million, hedged round with conditions which might have made it impossible. But it's a bit like the the Norse legend of Balder and the mistletoe, they forgot about the Glasgow Parks Department, which actually, by chance, satisfied all of the conditions and suddenly found itself with £4 million to spend. Um, and they were, however, told that they must have special projects as part of this big programme to improve the city's parks and generally the amenities of the city. And... They brought in a chap from Northern Ireland called Ken Naylor, who was good at this, and he very quickly set up a whole raft of special projects, one of which was astronomy, about which he knew nothing, as he was the first to admit. So he held a school competition, and the winning entry was to build a copy in modern materials of an ancient site like Stonehenge or Kalanish. And they couldn't get anybody to do it. They approached a friend of mine, the late Professor Roy at Glasgow University, who was an expert in ancient astronomy. And he said, I couldn't possibly do this. I'm far too busy, but I know someone who might be crazy enough. Which is how he phrased it when he called me to ask if I would be interested. So I took it on. 
And the first thing I had to do was to convince the Manpower Services Commission and the Parks Department that a copy of an ancient site on a, in modern times and in a different location would not work. Part of the brief was that it had to be functional as an observatory. And I said, no, it can't, it can't be done because each ancient site is specific to its location, to its latitude, to the surrounding horizon. And anyway, the tilt of the Earth's axis is altered by half a degree and the positions of the stars have moved due to precession of the equinoxes. What I've got to do is find a site and design something according to the ancient principles. And once I'd won that battle, which took a while, uh, I then went for the jugular and I said, okay, now let's get rid of the modern materials and build it in stone as a tribute to the ancient builders, but also to the present day experts like Archie Roy, Ewan Mackay, and Professor Alexander Tom and his son Archie Tom, all of whom are either Glasgow based or have been in the past and are all connected with the university in one way or another. Um, let's make it a tribute to them and to the engine builders. And I won that one. And I had the, then I had the green light to do what I did. So what I did was I found a suitable site in what was then designated to become Site Hill Park. And I was allowed to hire a team of experts, including the late John Braithwaite, whom we mentioned earlier, uh, people who had the skills I needed to, to help me do this. Uh, we determined the best point in the park for, for the purpose, which was overlooking the M8 motorway and the, the city centre, down a site that was designated for a, a viewpoint in the new park. We found suitable stones from a quarry in Kilsyth, and after a lot of, lot of ups and downs in the, in the tail, eventually we, we got the, the basic layout established, and the circle was then completed by a Royal Navy helicopter, which was a big event of the day and um, so there it was I had designed and built the first astronomically aligned stone circle in the British Isles for over 3,000 years yes and um, a, an individual we had been speaking about Tony Ilm which can be found at paranormalforum.net he's a member there he actually mentioned because uh, I read it online where the former pri British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher was not too pleased at all with the Navy helicopters being used. Is, is that Absolute, true? Absolutely. She'd only just taken office, and she had got herself elected on the pledge that she would reverse unemployment, which was running high in Britain at the time. Her campaign slogan was, Labour isn't working. And she, she was conservative, and she won the election on that. And just days after the election uh, and the helicopter operation, um, the shop steward came into my office and said, do you know you've just been denounced in the House of Commons? Wow. And I said, no. Um, I've never been able to establish whether it was the Iron Lady herself who said this or whether it was Sir Keith Joseph speaking on her behalf because it's not in Hansard. It's not in the parliamentary record. It must have been an off-the-cuff remark. But what was said was that they would be restoring full employment by the end of 1980, which they didn't do. Instead, they quadrupled it. But because of that, there would be no need for the jobs creation program, which would be wound up at the end of the year, and there will be no more nonsense like the Glasgow Parks Astronomy Project. And the following day, 
guy from the Manpower Service Services Commission was round to see me saying, "Stop work, stop work now." He says, "If you do, if you continue, you might put the entire program in at risk. At least we've got till the end of the year, but you mustn't do any more." And that was that was that. Um, the circle was never fully completed, and um, um, all these years it has remained like a well-kept secret um, until 2012 when it was decided that it would be demolished and done away with. Who decided and, it would be demolished? Yes. The whole – the park has gone. It's now a building site. The new housing is being built. Whose decision was that? Well, yeah, whose That's decision? City Council. City Council planning well, department. That had to have been hard on you. Well, it came as a big shock because my book about the Stone Circle had just been published, and I thought I had been with my wife invited up to Glasgow to discuss the final completion and uh, renovation of it. And instead of which, we were told, no, it's going in the skirt. You know, nobody cares about it. Nobody knows about it. Thank you for coming. Yeah. By that night, a friend of ours, Mandy Collins, the editor of Spooky Isles, had, um, had started a, a website in protest and it turned out, something I hadn't been able to say in the, in the interview, and it turned out that, in, that thousands of people had been using the circle quietly for their own purposes, for meditation or whatever, scattering their loved ones' ashes. Um, in particular, the Druid and Pagan community had been using it on the quiet for their ceremonies. Uh, I, was, I wasn't aware of any of this. Um, and the petition reached six and a half thousand signatures, at which point they, there was a change of heart in the city council and they, they promised that the, the stones would be preserved and re-erected <laughs> and went on to add that later that the topsoil would be preserved because of the ashes that had been scattered there. And where we are at now is that a new site has been created at the end of the development, the extreme end of the former park, on which the stones are due to be re-erected. It was to have, I managed to, in last summer, to get the observations I needed to recalculate the alignments, which I've done. And the, um, the stones were to have been re-erected in November, but there's been a delay. But it should be happening any time now. Um, and they're planning to hold some kind of public ceremony at the spring equinox. So I'm just waiting for the word. And uh, my circle is will rise again. Yes, it and, will. And uh, furthermore, it will. But this time, it will be complete. The stones marking the equinoxes will be will be included. Was this and supposed will... to be in a replica of Stonehenge? No, no, no. It's it's. I had to design, as I said before, I had to design a new a new circle according to the ancient principles, but integrated with the actual landscape of Glasgow in the present day. Okay. Um, it's quite a ticklish job, but and I've now so which I've now done twice. Um, but yes, that's that's it. It is not a copy of anything, but all of the features in it correspond to features found at ancient sites. For example, the stones are graded from north to south as they are at Stonehenge, and the largest stones are used to mark the lunar alignments, which Professor Tom has told us you know, told us how was how it should be done, and the Basic layout is a very scaled-down version of the, the giant layout of outstations surrounding it. 
um, a huge standing stone in Brittany called it Le Grand Minier Brise. Um, what I've done is to scale it down basically from 40 miles across to 40 feet. And after I'd come up with that idea, for various practical reasons, um, Dr. Ed Crump at the Griffiths Observatory in Los Angeles came up with the same suggestion, which was a big help in getting the Manpower Services Commission to accept it. Um, so, yeah, that's what it is. Um, central stone uh, surrounded by four arcs marking the sun, uh, solstice sunrises and sunsets, flanked by the major and minor lunar standstills. And mm. uh, a star alignment to, to Rigel to, to give it the date. And, um, and the new feature is that markers for the equinoxes are being added. And um, with any luck, it will be, it will be up shortly. Um, after all these years, I'm really looking forward to that. Well, I bet you are. Uh, and Duncan Lunan is our guest today. And Duncan, thank you so much for being on the show with us. Uh, we've definitely learned a lot from you, especially about the Green Children of Woolpit, the Sight Stone Circle that you built, and the Sight Hill Stone Circle, I should say. Mm -hmm. especially the mysterious signal, as I call it, the mysterious signal. But as you say, it probably wasn't that much of a, my a mystery. Well, it still is a, it still is a mystery. <laughs> I mean, it's a bigger mystery than ever, if you know. Yes. Yeah. But, um, yeah, can, I, can, can we make a passing mention of my books? Oh, yes, um, you can. And your website's also DuncanLoonan.com. You are an astronomer. Yeah. And it, what books do you have available? Well, I have quite a number, but... The one on the green children is called Children from the Sky, paraf paraphrasing Robert Burton. Um, and the one on the stone circle is called The Stones and the Stars. Uh, I also have one on protecting the Earth from asteroids uh, called The Incoming Asteroid, What Could We Do About It? And a couple of fiction books as well, uh, The Elements of Time and Starfield, which I edited. And you'll find the details of all of those on the website, which you mentioned. Well, Duncan, thank you so much. I, like I said, we definitely appreciate that you came on there with us. We've been trying to do this a while now, haven't we? Mm -hmm, yes, a couple yes. of field shots. Yes. Good to have got it done. Oh, definitely. Thank you very much for asking me. Well, it's definitely an thank honor you. to have you here with us. Is there anything that you're looking forward to in the night sky as an astronomer that's coming up this year? Well, no. Um, let, me, let me think. Obviously, we've got the eclipse coming up very shortly. And I'm following the various space probe missions with great interest. And so much, so much happening at the moment with the asteroids and the outer yes. solar system. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a, a lot going on. Um, so you're looking forward to a lot of things happening. Yes, but particularly if we get the circle back up, then once the stones are cemented in place, we we have to look at the equinoxes and solstices and see if I got it right. Um, that will be <laughs> that will be an interesting moment. Oh yes, I've no reason to think I've got it wrong, but uh, it will be quite exciting to go up there and see it see it happen. 